My name is Eric Burke. And I'm Nipper Reed, and this is the Field Herpin Podcast. Over the coming months, myself and Nipper will be deep diving into all aspects of field herping. We'll be looking at target species, specific locations, herping in all parts of the world. Equipment, safety, logistics, trip planning, live field reports, photography, snake bite, field herping pioneers, and just about anything else we can think of. So why field herping? I think I can speak for both of us when I say field herping is a passion. Nothing comes close to the thrill of chasing down a new species. The camaraderie of bonding on a field trip with the right people, and above all, the experience of seeing the reptiles and amphibians in their natural environment, displaying their natural behavior. It's completely addictive. for joining me and Nipper for the Field Herping Podcast. In this episode, we are concentrating on an exceptional herper, a herper that has a herping lifestyle above and beyond the average field herper. You could say he's quite the unique field herper. Now, field herping is both mine and Eric's passion. I would say we both field herp as often as possible. However, things like work, money for flights, money for hire cars, money for petrol, food, accommodation, the time away from partners and the inevitable we need to decorate not spend money herping conversations, if you're listening Ali, love you, all get in the way. Now imagine if you had none of these pressures to stop your herping. That's where Lou comes in. Lou does more foreign herping in a month than most people do in a year. So for those of you living under an unflicked rock, let me tell you a little bit about Lou. Lou is in his early 50s, although like me, good genetics and a healthy lifestyle means he looks considerably younger. He has a lovely wife, two lovely kids, and he lives by the beach in California. He's a proficient surfer and he's an airline pilot. Now all of this is cool, but as far as we're concerned, the thing that makes Lou one of the really cool kids is the fact that on every layover between flights, he goes out and herps locally. He also kindly records this for us all to enjoy on his extremely popular YouTube channel. We'll add the link in the bio, but listen to the rest of the episode before you bugger off to watch it. We were lucky enough to spend a few hours with Lou whilst he was actually at home rather than globe trotting, and we posed a few questions to him. So Lou, unlike Nipper, who was field herping as soon as he could walk, you came to herping quite late in life. What started that interest? Yeah, I started herping when I was probably 44 or 45 years old, which is, you know, crazy to most people, I guess. But uh, I grew up in Los Angeles in the city, always loved snakes, but didn't realize you could actually go out and find them. So about 10 years ago, when I was 44, I visited my brother out in Arizona and stumbled across a long-nosed snake in his backyard, so to speak, which is, you know, mostly mountains and rocks. And at that point, I decided, you know, let's try and find everything I can out there. And uh, I've been doing that for the last 10 years. Now, Lou could be doing anything on his layovers. He could be catching up on sleep like a normal human being. He could be going to see historical sites. He could be sniffing coke off of hookers. But he chooses to field herp. And we asked him his motivation behind that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the rest of the crew, the co-pilot I'm with, is you know usually straight to bed when we get in but for me like getting to singapore i get there about two hours before sunrise so i try and get out there before the sun rises so it is a crazy mad dash of 
I, I don't know what you'd want to call it, but a lot of Red Bull. And uh, when you find something or you see something you haven't seen, it's you're wide awake. I mean, like it's a shot of you know, lightning almost. And, you know, sleep is the last thing you're thinking about. But uh, when I get back to the hotel room a little bit later, yeah, I crash out pretty hard. I don't I don't video that part. But, yeah, <laughs> I crash out pretty hard. Now, obviously, um, you fly for a living. You fly for an airline. You're very fortunate in that, you know, you get to travel more than the average human being. Can you list the countries that you've managed to help in or the states in, in America that you've managed to help in? Yeah, I feel really fortunate to, you know, be able to travel the world. Um, I fly for a Japanese airline, so every other flight I do is into Tokyo. So Japan is probably the number one hurt spot for me other than the U.S., you know, living at home here. But uh, I've been to Thailand, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, yeah, a lot of places in the U.S. We do flights to Europe, but I, I don't get those flights very often. We fly into Amsterdam, but I haven't been there in 10 years probably. And of all the Asian countries that you, you're regularly flying to, which is your favorite to help? Uh, that's a tough one. I fly to Japan all the time, but we stay out by the airport. I don't have transportation, so I'm limited to herping, you know, right next to the hotel. Um, Singapore is a great country. It's a small country. There's taxis and public transportation. So you can get out within five minutes of the hotel door and be out in the middle of the jungle. And, you know, there are king cobras and blue coral snakes. And so Singapore, it's got a special place in my heart. I love Singapore. Hong Kong's awesome. I've been to Bali. Bali is also a great place. I, it's hard to pick a favorite. I would say Singapore just because of the blue coral snake. And that is like a snake that just touched me somehow. I don't know. It sounds weird, but that has a special place in my heart. You've been to Tokyo. You say it's your, your go-to stopover. What kind of um, herbs are you regularly seeing in Tokyo? Yeah, Tokyo is my normal staple flying for a Japanese airline. We stay out at Narita, which is the airport that's about an hour and a half outside of the city. Um, I'm on foot, so everything I find is based on walking. And there are two venomous snakes there. There's a tiger keelback, which is actually venomous and poisonous, kind of one of the unique species of snakes. Rhabdophis tigrinus, the tiger keelback, is a venomous and poisonous colubrid found in Southeast Asia. They get their name keelback from the rough texturing of the keeled scales along the snake's spine. And at first glance, these snakes heavily resemble the garter snakes of North America. Long, slender-bodied, with large eyes and lateral bands going down the snake's body, hence the name tiger, with geometric blocks of pigment. The color of Rhabdophis tigrinus is strikingly beautiful, a base tone of bright olive and lime green with a pale belly and near chessboard patterning of saddles along the animal's sides. On the upper third of the snake are bright hues of orange, red, and pink with a bright green or yellow band at the nape, a clear warning sign to any would-be predators. It's believed that this bright coloration close to the snake's neck is to highlight the snake's nuchal glands. A nuchal gland is a subcutaneous gland that develops steroid irritants from extracted toxins found in digested prey items. Essentially, the snake consumes a poisonous toad, which digests the toad's toxins and produces a poison of its own in the glands of the neck. Contrary to the belief that no snakes are poisonous, the genus Rhabdophis disproves that belief. Symptoms of a poisoning from a tiger killback are pain, blurred vision, nausea, cramping, and fever. There are several cases of nuchal glands being sprayed haphazardly, resulting in a poisoning of the eyes. This resulted in corneal lesions and hypertension. In conjunction to the keelback's poison, they are also venomous, using opistoglyphic fangs to deliver their venom. The venom composition of the tiger keelback is a unique hemotoxin-like property. The rear fangs of Rhabdophis tigrinus are not grooved in the traditional sense. Therefore, the venom delivery is typically weak or non-existent. This has developed a fallacy amongst local communities that they are not venomous. However, a full envenomation can be life-threatening. Initial symptoms of an envenomation are pain and major bleeding of the bite site. Once the venom has entered the bloodstream, extreme blood clots can occur throughout the body. Should someone feel they've been poisoned by Rhabdophis chagrinus, 
Symptoms can be delayed with the use of antihistamines, but medical help should be acquired. Should someone feel that they have been envenomated by Rhabdobus chagrinus, they must seek medical help immediately and be administered antivenine. And then there's also the mamushi, which is a pit viper. The mamushi, Gloideus blumhoffii, is a highly venomous species of pit viper native to eastern China, Japan, and the Korean Peninsula. Due to their stark resemblance to the North American water moccasin, or cottonmouth, they have developed the common name, Japanese moccasin. The name mamushi is purely a Japanese word that truly hails from the ancient world. When broken down, its basic etymology is simple. The old Japanese verb, hamu, meaning that which bites, and the words habu and hibai, meaning snake. The origin of these words may even predate what we would consider ancient Japan and possibly be from the old Indian subcontinent. Referencing dialects of the old world, it is presumed to be originally pronounced pamushi or hamushi, and although its name was conceptualized by the Japanese, its usage for pit vipers is synonymous across the region, regardless of the native languages within. There are three subspecies of Gloideus blumhoffii, each endemic to their respective regions where they are typically residing in deciduous, rocky terrain littered with grass and shrubs near the edge of forests and rice fields. Mamushi are one of the most common snakes encountered by humans in the Japanese isles, resulting in over 2,000 bites a year. It is the second most toxic species in Japan, only bested by the Okinawan habu. The venom of the mamushi is an elegant cocktail of toxins, primarily consisting of hematoxins as well as pre- and postsynaptic neurotoxins. It's because of these neurotoxins that simple antivenin is ineffective by itself in treatment of a mamushi envenomation. In conjunction with Chinese and Japanese antivenin, bites from a mamushi should be treated with phospholipase inhibitors to counteract the fatty acids within the toxin. Symptoms of an envenomation from a mamushi consist of sharp throbbing pain, swelling, and bouts of palsy. If left untreated, respiratory paralysis and kidney failure could be imminent. And although most bites are treatable, mamushi envenomations can be fatal resulting in over 10 deaths a year in Japan alone. Anyone who believes they have been bitten or envenomated by Gloideus blumhoffii or its subspecies should seek medical attention immediately and be administered antivenin. So those are the two venomous snakes I can run into. There are two different rat snakes. There's a forest rat snake and a four-lined rat snake. And actually there's a Japanese rat snake. So there are three different rat snakes I can see out there. The Japanese rat snake probably being the most common. Japanese rat snake, Ypropiophis conspiculata, is native to all four main islands of Japan, including some smaller outlying islands, as well as Kunishia Island, a territory disputed between Japan and Russia. Adults are usually 70 to 100 centimetres, or 2.3 to 3.3 feet in total length, including body and tail. The bodies can be a striking orange-bronze colour, with heavy lighter freckling, reminiscent of a corn or king snake. These are typical colubrids, with the associated slender build and distinct head. In recent years, there has been some taxonomic controversy over the genera of rat snakes. Based on mitochondrial DNA, Utica et al. 2002 argued for a splintering of the genus Elaf and suggested a reworking of the genera. However, at present, Japanese rat snakes remain in Elaf. The Japanese forest rat snake can be found surface active at any hour, but they most often show crepuscular activity patterns. It may completely cease surface activity from mid-late summer when conditions become too hot and or dry. Principal prey items are small rodents, and the snakes often use the rodent burrows for shelter. As the Japanese common name suggests, this species is visorial and is normally associated with forested areas. It occurs from sea level to at least 3,000 metres, or 9,800 feet. There are a couple other smaller species, but they're kind of drab in coloration and nothing all that exciting. It's kind of like finding a ringneck snake in the U.S. There's the Japanese keelback, and it's, you know, uh, I don't know, 15 centimetres long. The Japanese keelback, Hebeus vipicari, is a species of colubrid snake which is endemic to Asia. It is found in northeastern China, Japan, including Honshu, Kyushu, and Shikoku, and Korea and Russia, including Amur Oblast, Khabarovsk Krai, and Primorsky Krai. It is a small snake growing to a maximum total length of 44 centimetres, 
or seven and a quarter inches, with a tail of 10 centimetres, or three and seven eighth inches long. It, it, it's, it's funny, when I first got into herping, I found this king snake, and instead of it being normal banded, it was a real crazy looking pattern that no one had ever seen before. And I started sharing it on these forums and people thought I had Photoshopped it. And it was funny. I, I found a normal banded one as well. And I brought one back just to show it to my kids and stuff. And I almost brought them back the, the, the normal banded one because I thought it looked the coolest. But uh, apparently the one I found was was just nuts. And people were like, oh, they don't look like that in the wild. And uh, the whole time I was just looking to find a ring neck snake. That was my goal. I know you're um, snake-centric, you, you, you know, you, you concentrate on your snakes. What other things apart from snakes are you finding when you're in uh, Japan? You, you've got to find something else to take up your time because there's hours of walking and looking and sometimes a lot of, you know, not finding anything. So for me, as weird as it may sound, it's butterflies. I like butterflies just because of how colorful they are. So... That's one of the things I kind of use to pass the time while I'm looking for snakes. I love other reptiles. I love, you know, monitor lizards and lizards in general, geckos, frogs. But something about finding a snake for me is just a different level. I don't know how to describe it. As well as Japan, Lou regularly visits other Asian countries, and as expected, as soon as he's free, he's out herping. We asked him what it was like to herp Hong Kong. Yeah, Hong Kong is one of my favorite places as well. It involves, for me, walking a lot of canals, which is just walking a lot of concrete, which mm, it's not the same as finding a snake maybe out in the forest or the jungle somewhere, but... Uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 cool in its own way. Now, Hong Kong's got quite a lot of venomous reptiles, hasn't it? It's got a lot of Trimerosaurus and um, Trachydelamus, I believe. Okay. You've herped barley as well. What kind of stuff are you finding in barley? Yeah, there are, I think, two cobras, two corals, two crates, and two pit vipers, and maybe a few other things. So, yeah, there are quite a few, and... Uh, that's one thing I try and do before I go somewhere I haven't been before is kind of research what can uh, either kill me or hurt me. Yeah, Bali was awesome. I, I grew up surfing. I grew up by the coast and surfing was my love. If I could have been a professional surfer, that would have been my career, but it wasn't good enough. So I started flying. But uh, Bali's got some awesome waves and I didn't realize it had such awesome snakes as well. I went there once recently, it was about two years ago. I was only there for one day, but during that night we found a blue crate, a yellow-lipped sea crate. Um, what else did we find? A mangrove cat snake. Um, there was probably four or five other species. I'll have to think about it for a minute, but uh, the snakes are like off the hook there. They're everywhere, they're easy to find. Ungarus candidus, the blue crate, is one of the most unpredictable and dangerous snakes seldomly spoken about in the Western world. A member of the elapid family, cousin to mambas and cobras, crates are one of the most dangerous snakes frequently encountered by humans. There are 15 species of crate currently described, and of those 15, Bungaris candidus are the most prevalent. Blue crates can be found throughout the Malay Peninsula, south into Indonesia, with populations as far east as Bali. The typical coloration of the blue crate is bone white or cream, with broad bands of black or navy blue perpendicular to the snake's spine. The head is oftentimes black with a cream or yellow mouth. A bluish sheen is commonly seen on the species of snake, giving it its common name. Crates are ophiophagus, feeding on other snakes, including their own kind. They have been known to consume lizards and mice as well, but their body structure and venom composition is designed for snakes. Bungaris are notoriously unpredictable, especially Candidas. Specimen may be totally relaxed one minute and lash out the next. 
typically a rather calm species to work with during the daylight hours. Once night has fallen, this species is extremely defensive. Surges of speed, thrashing, and unforeseeable reactions are common well after dark. Most bites from the blue crate happen at night, when a snake has entered a rural home in search of prey and humans are just going to bed. The venom of Bungaris candidus is highly neurotoxic. Symptoms of an envenomation are pain and swelling of the bite site, with dark discoloration followed by muscle paralysis, tremors, uncontrollable spasms, and eventually fully flaccid paralysis resulting in death from asphyxiation. Due to its destruction of nerve cell synapses, it's common for bite victims to feel no initial pain. This can be devastating if medical treatment is not provided immediately. Should someone feel they've been bitten by a blue crate, medical assistance and the use of antivenin is imperative. How's, how's herping in Bangkok? It's quite a popular destination for field herping, actually, Thailand. Yeah, it's interesting. I We stay out by the airport, so for me, it's not like I'm there on a field herp trip. I've got a week to go out and, you know, explore the jungle. I'm literally there for 24 hours, so it's, uh, you know, get something to eat, get some sleep where I can, and then I usually herp in the city. And when I say in the city, I'm like in the city, like you know, there's buildings and, and high rises and I'm looking in little alleyways and, and stuff like that. And I'm finding snakes, you know, within two minutes of a 7-Eleven, you know, it's, it's, it's really cool. I don't know how to describe it. It's fun. That's brilliant. Urban herping. So I kind of already asked you, this is, this is apart from the US, which would you say is the favorite place you've visited so far? Are you still sticking with Singapore? Yeah, Singapore for me, because of the blue coral snake, it was the one snake that I really wanted to find and found and had a life-changing encounter with. The Malayan blue coral snake, or long-glanded coral snake, Calliophus bivregatus is one of the most beautiful, captivating, and unknown species of snake on our planet. A fossorial species of snake, rarely seen by humans, Calliophus bivregatus inhabits the high humidity leaf litter and forest floor of both highland and lowland areas. Currently, three subspecies are recognized. They're native to all of the island of Borneo, Thailand, and the southern Malay Peninsula. The blue coral snake are members of the Elapid family but are in no way related to the coral snakes of North and South America. Their coloration and physical characteristics put them in a league of their own. Calliophus bivregatus are long, slender snakes, reaching over two meters in length with high contrasts of color. The primary color is royal blue, with the sides and belly of the snake fading into a bright powder blue, giving them their common name. The head and tail are bright fluorescent red, alerting any would-be predators not to proceed. The diet of the blue coral is completely ophiophagus, consisting of other snakes, including baby and juvenile king cobras, and even other crates. Arguably, the most unique feature of this species are its venom glands, the longest venom glands of any snake. These glands run approximately one-third of the snake's body, allowing the species to produce an overwhelmingly high yield of venom, giving them their long-glanded name. Due to the elusive nature of this species, hunting, breeding, egg-laying, and courtship are literally unknown with this species. Very few individual specimens survive in captivity, and virtually nothing is known about their wild habits. Their venom, however, is well documented in modern medicine. Despite being an elapid, the venom of Calliophus bivregatus is not the traditional elapid neurotoxin, rather a unique toxin called calliotoxin, specific to this species. The calliotoxin targets the sodium channels of the pain receptors in the body. The toxin opens the receptors, and forces the neurons to fire all at once. The effect of this is full body muscle spasms, overwhelming body pain, and paralysis. Fatalities are rare, but have occurred due to paralysis of motor functions from formidable levels of pain. The sensation has been compared to a charley horse 100 times over the whole body. Symptoms of an envenomation from the blue coral are immediate pain at the bite site, followed by waves of uncontrollable spasms and searing pain in all appendages. There is no known antidote for the venom of Calliophus bifragatus. Should someone feel they've been bitten by a blue coral snake, they must seek medical attention immediately. 
it will always be special to me. Now, Bali with the surf and stuff is awesome. You know, Singapore has no waves, so, you know, there's no real swimming in the ocean there. But uh, Singapore is one of my favorite places. Getting back to home and a subject so close to mine and Nipper's hearts, we chatted to Lou about his best and worst herping experiences in the U.S. and his favorite areas. The best herping in the U.S. is a tough one for me. I, I've herped more places in Hong Kong and Singapore, and I know those better than I know the U.S. Um, my wife is from the Midwest in Kansas uh, City, and we have a house out there. So I've herped a little out there, and there's some awesome snakes in the Midwest. I have yet to get to Florida, which is going to be awesome. I'm just... I don't know what I'm waiting for, but uh, every time I want to go on a hurt trip, it's not just me going. The whole family wants to go now. So it goes from a few hundred dollars to a few thousand dollars real quick. But uh, the U.S. has a ton of snakes. Um, surprisingly, every little area has its little, you know, group of snakes. You can go up to the northern California area and find San Francisco garter snakes, which are stunning. You know, you can go find indigo snakes that are like two meters long. The rattlesnakes, I don't even mention them because they're sort of normal and commonplace, but for a lot of people, seeing the rattlesnakes would be in incredible by itself. I think for me, you've got 33 species of rattlesnake. If, you, if you're I talking didn't know that. just the US, not Mexico, <laughs> you can triple it if you're talking Mexico, but if you're just in the US, you've got 30, I think it's 33 species, and if you had the subspecies, that's 89 different rattlesnakes to see. Yeah, that's crazy. I never really, you know, it's funny. The Southern Pacific rattlesnake is the one I see almost every time I go herping. And it's it's more of a nuisance than it is, you know, finding a cool snake. I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. But I'm usually out there in sandals and shorts. So I, I get a little flack for that. But that's just who I am. I grew up surfing and that's just who I am. So the rattlesnakes, you got to really keep your eyes open for. Yeah. Um, I'm, as I say, I'm hoping to get to Arizona hopefully maybe this year if we're allowed to fly again that's that's the plan um i mean arizona has got it's, it's really weird I, I don't think americans appreciate how good their herps are because most americans i speak to oh, i want to go to australia oh, i want to go to thailand I, wanna... I, I have limited interest in going to australia yeah i cannot wait to herp america you have got so many cool species you've got the liar snakes you've got rosy bows you've got rubber bows you've got shield nose snakes you've got gopher snakes pine snakes you've got rubber snakes you've just got so many you've got the racers this is yeah. such a variety of snakes whereas if you go to australia you've got carpet pythons or lapids that's yeah. about, uh, you know, you haven't got much in between. You've got a few Boyger and stuff like that, but you haven't got a great range of snakes. Whereas... Now, and what's funny is my brother lives in Arizona, in the southern Arizona area, and it's, you know, like a seven-hour drive from here, and I have yet to do a proper Arizona herb trip. It's just every summer the kids are, you know, something's going on with the kids. I've got two kids in high school and you know my wife's from the midwest so we always go back and see her family so i always like oh we'll go next weekend we'll go next weekend well then school starts and then you know i'm working or so i have yet to do a good arizona trip but it will happen this year uh, I, I say i cannot wait to get out there and, and start seeing stuff herpin takes time and for some weird and degenerate people that have no more right on the earth than a slug field herping is not the norm and a good use of free time. We wanted to know what Lou's family thought of his hobby and his YouTube channel success. Yeah, I'll start with my wife. You know, like when we got married, like this wasn't a hobby of mine. We've been married for 20 years and I've been doing this for 10 years. So I think maybe she thought I lost my mind or something like, uh, you know, like what a, what grown man goes out in the jungle looking for snakes. It seems a little bit strange to the average person, but uh I started taking the videos to share my passion with her and my kids and like, hey, here's a snake. And I started watching my videos in the beginning and like, this is really boring. And just a video of a snake on the ground, like no wonder they don't get it. So then I started to try and develop the YouTube channel and share the experience of finding the snakes. And then 
I think it clicked with my wife. She's like, oh, I, I see. This is kind of cool. You know, it's like looking for Easter eggs or something. So um, every year we go out to the deserts now and we do a Father's Day trip. I've been doing a Memorial Day trip with kids and we go out and road cruise. And my wife's like really into that. I mean, to be able to get in the car and you know, she can text or do whatever she wants or listen to music and cruise, you know, for snakes on the road. It, it's easy herping, but she digs that, I think. Yeah. As far as my kids, they've kind of, my daughter's kind of grown up with it. She's 14 or she'll be 14 soon. And, you know, she's been doing that with me ever since she's been four. My son is 18, so he's been doing it since he's been eight. So, you know, they just sort of know it is what dad does, I think. And they enjoy going with me. They enjoy getting out. But uh, my son, as he's gotten older, has other interests. But my daughter, she's hanging in there. You know, I give her a few more years and she might ditch old dad for other things but we'll see i just say there's a, there's a video um one of my favorite one of yours on your youtube channel is when you and your son have got about two hours and you just pop out to go herping and you just rinse it you find so much in a couple of hours it was just amazing some of the species were stellar yeah i remember that video i remember that day because i think we went to the beach surfing ahead of time or something. And I'm like, Oh, let's head, let's just hit it on the way home real quick. And, uh, it's funny cause that video got a ton of views and I didn't really put a lot of effort into it or anything, although we did find a lot, but, uh, yeah, it's just interesting. Sometimes those impromptu outings that, you know, like, Hey, let's go look. And it turns into a magical moment. And, you know, to be able to share that's, you know, special for me. And, and what do your kids think about the fact that they're on a YouTube channel and thousands of people are watching them? Yeah, I don't think they think dad's YouTube channel is, you know, as cool as some of the neighbor kids that have huge channels and stuff. So um, I don't know. I think they think it's cool that I have a hobby and that their dad actually is, you know, on social media for them is kind of a, you know, a rarity and a cool thing, maybe. We've heard what your best place is to herp. What's the worst place you've herped? The worst place to herp. I don't know if that is a question you can really answer. Um, anytime you can get out and have a look for me is special, you know. So there are areas where what you're going to find is very limited. Um, uh, case in point, my wife was on the Wheel of Fortune, a TV show here in the U.S., and uh, she won a trip. And I was in Tokyo at the time, and she called. She goes, yeah, it was on. We won. We won a trip. And I'm thinking – Oh, where are we going? Hawaii or, or Mexico or, or something? And she's like, no, Canada somewhere. And I'm like, Canada? Like, okay. Like, you know, and then she's like, we're going to Nova Scotia. And I'm like, who, who wins a trip to Nova Scotia? You know, but I looked up the snakes that were found there and uh, I found one little Eastern garter snake that I saw for only a split second, but I got it on video and uh, I managed to try and find snakes in Nova Scotia, which is something Probably most people would never do. Now, comparing the two, which do you prefer, herping in America or herping in Asia? Oh, that's a tough one because America is a big place and there's so much of it I haven't seen. But there is something special about walking the jungles at night when it's hot and humid. You've got a flashlight in your hand and you're looking in trees for snakes. Um, it's just something you really don't do in the U.S., and I, I don't know. It's seeing a fluorescent green snake in a tree is just magical to me. I presume, and I'm presuming here, you don't keep any reptiles at home. We have a rosy boa that I kept legally. It was our first boa we ever found. And we kind of kept it to kind of share and show the local kids that, hey, look, snakes aren't out to get you. You know, look how friendly it is and, and such. So it's been kind of almost an educational tool, if you will. Um, I'm not against keeping snakes. I, I love snakes. I love seeing snakes. I think it's great people keep snakes. But for me, it's finding them. It's finding them where they live. Something about that is special. And I've found a lot of snakes where I'm like, ooh, I'd love to take this home. But, uh, yeah, I just haven't. Yeah. In the U.S., when you are out herping and, and you see these, these boards and the, the rubbish that's left and that you're flipping – has that been put there by somebody to encourage snakes for field herping, or is it just trash? The places you see in most of my videos are set up by somebody on purpose 
looking for snakes. Whenever you find, you know, a bunch of boards that are all just perfect and laid, somebody laid them out for snakes. Now, you could argue that's littering, and that's sort of why I don't set up my own lines. But, you know, people don't like you herping their lines. And like I said, I everything I find, I video, I try not to show the area, and then I let the snake go, you know, in the most easy manner as possible so the next guy is going to find it as well. But uh, guys, yeah, get very upset when they find out somebody else has been to their spot. I bet. And talking to other American herpers, so if I'm on a, one of my Euro trips with the people that I go herping with, say there's five of us and we're spread out across the side of a mountain, if one of them finds something, he'll call us all over or she'll call us all over and we'll have a look. And I can count that on my list of something that I've seen. But I've spoken to American field herpers and if they don't physically find it first, they won't count it on a list. How do you feel <laughs> yeah, about that? It's a weird deal. I don't know how that goes. For me, I just like seeing it. But at the same time, like if we're road cruising in cars and the other cars already stopped and found it, and then I pull up on them and they're like, hey, there's a liar snake here. It's awesome to see. But for me, I almost like feel like I missed out on the experience of seeing it first and going, oh, my God, it's a liar snake. I've never found one before. So I count it, don't count it. It doesn't make any difference to me. But for me, there is that personal satisfaction of either flipping a rock, a board, or driving up on something, not knowing what it is, and all of a sudden seeing it for the first time. You know, there's something special there. 100%. Do you keep a list? Are you a lister, or is it just the experience of being out that you you do it for? I don't keep a list per se, but there are certain things I would like to see or that I know that I'm missing from an area. And usually it's a, it's a, it's a large list, but, uh, you know, I'm not one of those guys. Like when I go out, I'm like, or I'm specifically looking for this snake. I really want to find this one. Um, I have limited time on a lot of my overnights. So if I try and go to an area that maybe one species likes, I may not see anything. So sometimes I go to an area where there's a lot of different species and I know I'll see something, but I might not see something that I really want to see. That's correct. So following on from that, what has been, and I think I know what you're going to say, what has been your best lifer? Yeah, there are two that I'll put on the list. The first one I'll come up with is the King Cobra. I've seen two King Cobras. One was in Hong Kong. It was my first one, and it was golden. It was I, you can look at the video all you want. I, I, you know, the video's got maybe a half million views, but it, it doesn't do justice. It was golden. It was, it was awesome. I don't know how else to describe it. It was really, really cool. So that's up there, the King Cobra. And, and I found another one in Singapore that was kind of drab, but it was bigger, maybe three meters long, and it crossed the road. And that video got like a million views because you can see it take up the whole road. And it's it, it, it's pretty stunning looking, to be honest. But uh Number one for me is the blue coral snake. Something about growing up surfing, I guess, and surfing over coral reefs and stuff. The word coral just is special to me. And when I found out there were snakes called coral snakes and they were colorful, you know, I was just always intrigued by those. And the fact that they're venomous somehow adds a different dimension or something. I don't know what it is about venomous snakes, but the fact it can maybe kill you makes it a little bit cooler. I'm not sure why. But the blue coral snake in particular gets to almost two meters in length. I mean, I've seen an adult that was, you know, five feet, you know, in the U.S. system, about five feet in length and stunning, like electric blue on the sides, red head, red tail, red underneath, and just moving like it could care less that you were there. And it just, I don't know, it's just beautiful. You'd have to see one. The pictures are awesome, but seeing one, there's no comparison. So... What species have you searched for the most but not found? Ooh, I don't know if I can answer that one. I don't really have a species that I really search for deeply. Like I'll go if I go to Arizona this spring or probably in the fall, there's a lot of snakes there I haven't seen. There's the rock rattlesnake, um, the coral snake out there would be awesome, and that would probably be one I'd really want to see. But if I really wanted to see it, I would have gone out there the last few years and looked. So for me, it's opportunity herping. I'm married with kids and, 
if I get an hour here or an hour there or a weekend here or whatnot, I'm, I'm going to wherever I am. And if it's a certain species that's there, awesome. But I'll go for whatever's in the area. And what species do you find most often but still excites you? Uh, for me, that's a Singapore species. There is a whip snake there, the uh, Oriental whip snake. It's just fluorescent green, super common. But every time I find one, whether it be shining one at night or finding one in the daytime, it just gets my heart racing. It's it's the iconic snake, I guess, just green in the trees. And it just, I don't know, for me, it's awesome. For the locals, they don't even take a picture. They just kind of look, uh, you know, around a whip snake and keep walking. But uh, maybe if I grew up with them, it'd be different. But um, for me, that's a snake that's common for me to find. The Oriental whip snake, Ahetala prasini, prefers forest edge habitats or their equivalent, including parklands, wooded residential areas, and rural agricultural areas. It is most commonly encountered while sunning itself on secondary growth along the forest edge. Its body form is extremely slender, though fully grown adults can reach two metres and appear more robust. Adult coloration varies from light brown to dull yellow-green and often a startling fluorescent green. The species feeds mainly on vertebrates, including small nesting birds, lizards and frogs. This species is rear-fanged and mildly venomous. The young are born alive and are brown with yellow and black flecks. It can be distinguished from the similar and closely related forest-dwelling big-eyed green whip snake on the basis of its smaller eye and generally the presence of a thin yellow line along the lower flank just above the ventral scales. The species ranges from India to China and throughout Southeast Asia, as far east as Sulawesi and the Philippines. So, if you can herp anywhere in the world, no cost implications, no legal implications, where would you want to herp? You know, it's funny, as much as like my YouTube channel has taken off and gotten a little, you know, traction and so forth, people were starting to say, hey, why don't you go look for this? Or why don't you go get this? Or, you know, like they have all these things for me to go find. And the reality is, you know, I'm an airline pilot. That's my full-time job. I work and teach uh, some Gulfstream simulator stuff over in Long Beach. So that's my second job. Married, kids. I don't really have a place or a species that's on my list to go do. It's just doesn't fit into my plans right now. When I retire, maybe in another four or five years, then I'll start looking at places and say, hey, I wouldn't mind finding this or I wouldn't mind seeing that. But right now, that's just not on the radar. So I can't really say there's a snake I'd really want to see. There, There is one that's really beautiful called the Royal Tree Snake. And I don't know, the, the Latin name sounds like a venereal disease or something. I don't know why, it's really got a weird name to it with margarita at the end of it or something. And so it's kind of half STD, half, um, you know, Mexican cocktail. But it's a royal tree snake is how I know it. If you look it up on YouTube, it is incredible looking. And I think it's very rarely encountered. So I wouldn't mind seeing one of those, but I don't even know where it, you know, it lives. I think it's in Brunei or in, in that area somewhere. That's cool. I think the beauty of um, your video channel is the excitement because it's opportunistic. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of people that plan trips and go for, as you say, go for a week and know all the target species and know have the sites exactly where they're going to find them, which is good. But I think the beauty of yours is it's right. I've got a couple of hours. Let's go and see what we can find. And it's the unpredictability of it. I think which is really nice. It's how it happened. And a lot of times it ends up, I don't find anything. But uh, that's think, the way it goes. Again, I think that is part of the beauty of it. If you found what you wanted to find every time, it wouldn't be as there wouldn't be the adrenaline of watching you go and try and find stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I I always know about an hour into it or so when I haven't found anything, and I shot all these B-roll type shots of me walking or you know whatever. I don't like being in front of the camera to be honest, but if you don't have a character at all in the videos, they sort of lose their feel. So. I, I do all these shots and then about an hour in, I'm like, I need a snake to make this snake video. And I don't know if I'm going to have a video. So I've done that so many times. It's, it's a little discouraging at sometimes, you know, I, th I think that's part of the beauty of it though. Even if we, we have 
20 minutes of you flipping boards and finding nothing. It just makes the one that you find that bit more special, you know. And a lot of times that's all it is, is one snake. But uh, it, it, it's still exciting when you've gone all day and you haven't seen anything and you're like, yes, I got one, you know. So I'm going to call you out now. Uh-oh. And you've mentioned it yourself already. And it's not just you. I cannot get my head round. There's a lot of Americans, including my really good friend, Phil Wolf, who's a venomous expert, that hurt in flip-flops. I get a lot of flack for that. I get more flack probably for not using a hook to, to yeah. you know, flip the boards. And to be honest, if I wasn't making the videos, I would use a hook because it's just easier. You don't have to reach down. It's super easy. Yeah. But when you have a camera in one hand and the hook in the other hand, you've got no hand free for when the snake takes off or goes down the hole or whatever's about to happen. You can video it as it happens and it's gone. So a lot of the snakes take off. So without a free hand, I can't do that. So the hook, I'll use it on occasion. I'm trying to use it more. Some people have been saying on Facebook, like, Hey, a lot of people are starting to watch your videos. Maybe you should show the younger generation, you know, the right way to do it. And, uh, I'm taking that to heart. I'm doing the best I can. But again, I, I can't hurt without a camera in my hand anymore. It's become sort of a life of its own. I, I can't just go out and look for snakes without videoing it. So uh, using the hook is difficult. Now, the sandals, sure, I could put on shoes. That'd be easy. But uh, I own a pair of work shoes, and I really don't own <laughs> a, a lot of shoes, as goofy as that sounds. Um, you know, I surf, I've got, you know, if you can't see in here, I've got three surfboards next to me. We live by the beach. Um, surfing in the beach is sort of my way of life. And I'll be up in Alaska on an overnight and I'll be walking out, you know, to get something to eat and I'll be in shorts and sandals and it's snowing outside. And that's just sort of me. I don't know. It's, it's not always smart. I'll, I'll wear the gaiters to protect my legs and boots if I can find them when I go into the rocky environments where I can't see where I'm walking. But the places where the boards are, you can pretty much see around all of them. And I'm not worried about the snake that's under the board. You know, I'm worried about the snake that maybe is next to the board. And that's where, you know, the, the, the bite's going to happen, in my opinion. Most people that aren't into herping, you know, or new to it think that, grabbing the board and lifting it oh it's going to grab you right away that's where you're going to get bit but that that's not going to happen in my experience you know the snakes rely on camouflage and you know and they just sit there as long as they can until they have to do something so i could couldn't really see a bite coming reaching to grab a board that's grand um do you what what are your venomous bite protocols because you you normally herp alone don't you you're normally on your own have you, have you got a plan in place if you get bit or is it just suck it and see? Yeah, I do have, you know, like one of the big things I'd say, if you're going to go to a country you haven't been to, which, you know, when I started herping, that's what I did all the time. I look up the venomous species in the area you're going to be herping in. So you know what the potential threats are. And just because you know what they're supposed to look like doesn't mean that's what they're going to look like. Case in point, I went out to Bali and looked for, uh, well, we're looking for everything, but one of the snakes we found was a blue crate. And the blue crate, I think it's also called the Malaysian crate, I'm not sure, but um, it's normally banded. It's uh, in a dark, either brown or black, and whitish or palish white bands that go down it. But apparently the ones in southern Bali aren't. They're all dark. They're solid dark, the entire snake. So, you know, if you went in there thinking, well, it's not a crate because it's not banded, you'd be sadly mistaken. So, you know, knowing what's there is one thing, you know, being able to ID in the field isn't always as easy as it seems. And I never ever reach for a snake unless I know what it is. And that's something I keep in mind. I also, the countries I go to, you know, you got 911 in the US and Hong Kong, it might be 9993 or Singapore or 997 or, I just look and see what the emergency number is for the country I'm in. It's something real simple to do. And then if you're ever somewhere, you know, where you're going to get bit or it could get bit, at least, you know, the first point of contact is this is where I am and this is who I'm calling. There's the venomous reptiles. There's weather. There's, you know, difficult terrain. It's, it can be quite dangerous. And, you know, 
we, we've we've got quite a few horrendous stories on the previous episode. Speaking of weather, yeah, I've been out in the jungles when the thunderstorms roll in, and I mean, it's uh, it's no joke. Um, if it hasn't happened to you, you know, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you're out in the jungle by yourself or, or even in the deserts or wherever you are, if you're out at night and the thunderstorms start coming, you know, the rain is the least of your worries. Sure. The, you know, the camera gear and everything I want to protect, but I mean, the lightning strikes, you know, the trees fall, the wind blows. And I mean, you know, you think, Oh, what are the odds when it happened to me? But, uh, when you're out there, you feel very alone and it can get a little bit, uh, yeah, interesting. I don't know. I wouldn't say scary, but it definitely will get your attention and you'll be glad when it passes. Well, I know two people and I'm not going to mention names, but uh, I know a couple people that have been bit by the blue coral snake. And, uh, you know, it's supposed to be an agonizing death and a very quick death. Now, luckily, both of them had dry bites, but, uh, you know, I think they call it the 100, 100 step snake or something, That's you know. Right. So my buddy's like, well, just go 99 steps and then call for help. You know, That's don't right. take the last step. But I, I don't know if that actually works. Um, I mean, it probably works. That's fine. Can you tell us your top tip for herping in the field? Oh, wow. You know, it's funny. is like this channel started to take off and whatnot. And people think like maybe that I'm an expert at, you know, finding snakes and all this. And I'm just your average guy that uh, does this as a hobby. Now, I've learned a lot over the years. So if you're going to go out at night, bring two flashlights, bring three flashlights if you got them. You know, you can't have enough light. Um, batteries go out. Things happen. You'll drop it. And then it doesn't work. So I've been in tunnels like full-on tunnels where you can't see one end to the other when the lights are out and you know there are no lights other than yours so lighting is key at night having a cell phone that's charged just in case you need to call somebody is key um you know i don't really worry about snake bites so much that's like not on my list of things to worry about complacency is though i'll walk like i've walked maybe three hours in Hong Kong at night, walking, 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 nothing, found nothing. And then I stumbled across a Chinese cobra, a large one that was literally like two feet in front of me. And it was just because I'd walked for so long and, and like, oh, there's nothing, there's nothing. It's going to be one of those nights. And you get into that, you know, complacency mode where you're just like, oh, this is what it is. And you've just got to stay alert because, you know, you are your own defense, you know, so it's up to you. So you can't fall into that trap. The Chinese cobra, Naja Atra, is one of the more common species of cobra found in China and Southeast Asia. They are easily recognized by their dark dorsal coloration, white or cream colored face, and infamous hood used as a defense display. On the back side of the hood are lateral tapered bands of white or gray, reminiscent of the monocle cobra of Indonesia and the Malay Peninsula. Some phenotypes found on Taiwan are extremely light in color, with an overall appearance of pale yellow with brown and taupe, replacing the white and gray of the hood. These snakes have a more potent venom, and because of their stark contrast in color to the snakes in the mainland, they are typically referred to as Formosan cobras, despite being the same species. Naja Atra are found throughout southern China, all of Taiwan and Hainan Island, as well as north Vietnam. Chinese cobras are true opportunists when regarding their habitat and prey. They can be found in evergreen mountainsides, woodlands, grasslands, dense tropical jungle, and even mangrove estuaries. And as human development and expansion migrate into these environments, Naja Atra can even be commonly found in urban environments where they happily prey on rodents, lizards, and even other snakes. Naja Atra is an extremely defensive species. When provoked by a predator, will rapidly stand up, open its hood, and prepare to defend itself. Chinese cobras are known to have leapfrog in defense, a quick strike followed by a rapid retreat. And although not a spitting species of cobra, Naja Atra has been known to spray its venom unknowingly when striking, simply from the sheer force of their strike. Chinese cobras are true cobras, members of the Elapid family, and their venom is not to be fooled with. Many people who are bit in the field initially feel no pain or symptoms until it is too late. The venom of Naja Atra is a blend of postsynaptic neurotoxins and cardiotoxins. Initial reaction from an envenomation are pain and darkening of the bite site, followed by intense throbbing body pain, insensibility, chest pain, fever, paralysis of the throat, loss of voice, degradation of gross motor functions, and difficulty breathing. Shortly after envenomation, an necrosis of the bite site begins to take effect. 
This necrosis can develop rapidly and cause massive permanent damage, even with the use of antivenin. It is common for victims to experience necrosis as a disease, sometimes lasting several years and even reoccurring later in life. Anyone who has been bitten by a Chinese cobra needs to seek medical attention immediately. Even if no pain is prevalent, it's imperative that antivenin be administered as soon as humanly possible. Give us one piece of kit that you never leave home without to go herping. <laughs> For me now, that's a camera, as that's weird as that sounds. I can't herp without my video camera. And that's turned into from one camera to a GoPro with it and a drone and all these extra batteries. And I end up with like a big backpack full of stuff just to go out and look for a few snakes, which is kind of ridiculous in a way, I guess. But uh, it's what I love. So I like to try and share the experience. But uh, otherwise... If I wasn't doing the YouTube channel, I probably wouldn't bring anything but my phone. As a seasoned herper now, what would be the advice that you'd give somebody new coming into field herping? Uh, that's a tough one. You know, again, you know, like people come to me asking questions like I'm an expert and stuff, and I'm not. I'm just your average guy, but I do have experience, and that's what, you know, life obviously is, is just a bunch of experiences that you can tie together and learn from. So... You know, bringing a phone is, is huge for the, you know, the kids that are underage, you know, maybe let your parents know where you're going before you go. So someone knows where to look for you if you don't come back, um, you know, with rocks and stuff. If you live in a rocky area, it's very easy to put your fingers where you can't see. I could see a bite happening like that. So, you know, watch where you're putting your hands. You know, most snake bites, I think, happen in the U.S. from teenagers that pick up snakes. So, you know, if you don't know what it is, or if you do know what it is and it's a rattlesnake, you know, best maybe just to leave it alone and then appreciate it for what it is. And, you know, you don't have to get this cool shot for Instagram of you holding it or anything. It's, there's more to life than that. What do you think about people that do the free handling videos when they're out herping venomous snakes? Yeah, that's interesting because I have a couple of friends, you know, that I consider good friends that hold venomous snakes on the regular you know they they own quite a few and they hold them now being you know in my mid-50s married with kids that's just not for me but you know if i was 20 <laughs> and single you know i'm not i'm not against it i don't know if i would do it but uh you really just got to know the consequences of your actions and i mean like you can be the best at what you do but, you know, life happens and, you know, that animal on that day may not be his normal self and he may bite you. And you have to accept that as a risk that you may end up in the hospital and that you may ultimately die. You know, so can you, if you can accept those risks, then knock yourself out. Now, I wouldn't be one of those guys. There are people that are like, I can get a million views if I can hold this King Cobra, you know, real close to the camera and stuff. And. You know, I get the idea behind that. These people are like, they want to be Instagram famous or whatever you call it. But uh, that's not the reason to be doing it. And that is asking for trouble, in my opinion. It's been great to talk with you, Lou. Someone that manages to hold down a full-time job and a relationship and still globally her consistently is just amazing. So a huge thanks to you for sharing some of your experiences with us. Be sure to check out and subscribe to Lou's YouTube channel, Lou B4747. That's all from Nipper and me on this episode. Thank you for spending the time with us. If you want to get in touch with me, info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com is the way to go. Check out our website, MoreliaPythonRadio.com, for all of the podcasts on the Morelia Python Radio Network. If you want to follow Nipper or get in touch with him, Nipper Reed on Facebook and Instagram. Good night, folks. Field Herping Podcast is out. The sea crate, or genus of Leticauda, are a highly aquatic species of snake endemic to Southeast Asia. Oftentimes confused with true sea snakes, members of the Leticauda genus still come on land to bask, digest their food, and lay their eggs. 
Sea crates are a unique example of convergent evolution, evolving to take to the sea from ancient Australasian elapids far before the evolution of true sea snakes. There are currently eight described species of Latakota, ranging from the Andaman Islands to the Great Barrier Reef, all of which spend the majority of their lives under the sea. As the snakes mature, their ability to be on land increases, and most adult males will spend half their lives on land. With a paddle-like tail and a blunt nose, sea crates are adapted for negotiating the obstacles of the coral reef in search of eels, small fish, and crustaceans to eat. However, as graceful as they are in the sea, their evolution has hindered their terrestrial abilities. They are often found stumbling over rock jetties and getting slowed down in dense beach sand. The hunting habits of the Leticotta complex are rather unique. Snakes will dive deep offshore, as deep as 80 meters, in search of prey. Their blunt faces are perfectly designed to penetrate the nooks and crannies of the coral reef. This, however, leaves their body vulnerable. As a predatory deterrent, some crates' tail patterning will resemble the markings of their head, confusing predators while the real head is buried under rock. After eating, sea crates return to land to bask and digest their food, which could take several weeks. It takes a bit of convincing to instigate a sea crate to bite. Bites typically occur when a human has stepped on a beached snake at nighttime or when a human has removed a snake from the water during the day. Because of their rather placid demeanor, sea crates are oftentimes handled recklessly by humans. This can be a dangerous act. The venom of the Leticotus genus is extremely toxic, designed to knock out a moray eel in seconds. Secret venom is a very powerful postsynaptic neurotoxin. It's designed to disrupt synapses of the body and block the chemical messages released by nerve cells. This disruption of neurological functions leads to a catastrophic stoppages in the central nervous system, essentially turning the body off. Symptoms of an envenomation are headache, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and uncontrollable muscle spasms eventually setting into a flaccid paralysis, cardiac and respiratory failure, and death. Envenomations from the sea crate are extremely dangerous. Medical aid and antivenin must be provided should a bite actually occur.